good day to you. This is the Falking Around Podcast. I'm Carl Falk. Hope you're having a good week. We are still in quarantine, but uh, there might be a light at the end of the tunnel, and that light might not be attached to a speeding train that's going to take us all out. Things starting to look better. We had somewhat of a weekend of normalcy this past weekend. The NFL draft filled a lot of our sports needs. And, you know, some people like me are into the draft every year. I, I love the draft. I, just works for my brain, the team building aspect of it and the theorizing. And when you're incorporating college football to the NFL, things that translate, things that don't, I just find it fascinating. And it's become a cultural phenomenon. We, we see year after year it getting bigger and bigger. And this year was much different than it's ever been. We're doing everything virtually nowadays as we're doing this podcast, not from the nice studio we have, but from my home via Skype. And the sound quality, while not as good as before, we've become used to not as good. But with the NFL draft, I don't think it was not as good. It was different. ESPN, in a lot of ways, in my opinion, did a great job with their coverage. The fact that they had the people being drafted in their homes with their family, with their friends. You saw some real emotion. Yes, we didn't get to see the commissioner bro hug, but did we ever really need to see that? It's a strange, strange thing to take those people, their best moment of their life, and take it away from them in a public spectacle. But in the same way, being stripped down sometimes Having it with just your family was better. I thought Roger Goodell did a really good job inviting us into his home. He, of course, broadcast from his basement. For the most part, Goodell was good. Round one was funny because, you know, everyone gets excited about round one. I personally think the draft is made or broken on days two and three. If you miss on round one, you've got problems. If you hit in rounds two, three, four, five, six, seven, you can make up for round one. But Goodell, who started out standing next to the TV and there were fans and Zoom boxes and on the TV behind him booing him. I thought that was a little lame. Yeah, we want you booed, Roger, but we want it real. But he started out standing there announcing the picks, doing a great job with it. And as the draft went on, he decided to have a seat in his chair. At first, sitting up, you know, we've got, uh, and then at the end, lounging back. He was like an old guy, like me, going to a party or seeing his friends for the first time in a long time. You know the situation. You get to the bar, you're all fired up, your friends are coming in, you're having a couple beers. That's great. Three hours later, everyone's leaning on the bar. Everyone's tired. That's what Roger Goodell was. The $43 million commissioner was actually human. He was spent by the end of that draft. And you could tell he could bet. He was like, all right, let's just go. Enough of this. I don't care that the Chiefs are going to pick a running back from LSU. I got to go to bed. I got a thing tomorrow. It was good to see the human side of Roger Goodell. Any draft coverage brings back Mel Kuyper Jr., ESPN's 
good draft guru, if you will. He and Todd McShay, and McShay was absent because he is ill with the coronavirus, and I wish him all the best in getting back healthy and on air. Very good broadcaster, in my opinion. But Kuyper's the standard for the draft. Why is he the standard for the draft? Not only did he basically start ESPN's draft coverage, this also happened many years ago on ESPN. You know, we got a guy up there. Who in the hell is Mel Kuyper, in a way? I mean, here's a guy that criticizes everybody, whoever they take. He's got the answers to uh, who you should take and who you shouldn't take. In my knowledge of him, he's never, ever put on a jock strap. He's never been a coach. He's never been a scout. He's never been an administrator. And all of a sudden, he's an expert. He's in our papers two days ago telling us who we have to take. We don't have to take anybody that Mel Kuyper says we have to take. Mel Kuyper has no more credentials to do what he's doing than my neighbor, and my neighbor's a postman, and he doesn't even have season tickets to the NFL. I like that Tobin's got the cocktail in his hand the whole time he's talking. I love that. Calling out Kuiper. Who the hell is Mel Kuiper? Well, Mel Kuiper has created an industry of which many of us are very thankful because we did get some normalcy. In the draft, it was pretty cool this weekend, I thought. Personally, I liked a lot of things. The Bengals taking Joe Burrow. Who knows what Joe Burrow is going to become in the NFL? He's a guy who I think has a chance to be a really good NFL quarterback. The Bengals organization continually gets beat up. They're a smaller market organization that hasn't been good. Sound familiar, Bills fans? They have to earn that respect. I don't know if Zach Taylor is going to be the guy to bring them around. But Burrow gives them a fighting chance. They did some good things in the draft, and I think the Bengals are going to be an interesting team because of Joe Burrow going forward. And I always think this, too, about the NFL. What makes the NFL great is its ability to have the small markets be relevant. The Cincinnati's, the Tennessee's, the Buffalo's. When the small markets are good, then the NFL is at its strongest. The big markets, the New York's, the Philadelphia's, the Dallas, they're always going to take care of themselves. Good, bad, or indifferent, they're going to be interesting. But the NFL needs the small markets to bring their weight up as well. And I think the Bengals did that this weekend. To me, the biggest winner this offseason is the Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins had very good luck in free agency. Byron Jones, the former Cowboy cornerback, they bring in Shaq Lawson. They bring in a linebacker for the Patriots. They're putting different veterans in place to go along with the huge draft haul they got. But it's all going to come down to Tua. Is Tua the guy that they think he can be? And if he is, the Dolphins are going to be very good. I don't know what they do with Josh Rosen. I can't think that they're going into camp with Tua, Fitz, and Rosen. They may. Most teams go with three quarterbacks at some point. But I think Rosen's too good of an asset to be a third quarterback. The Patriots still, at this point, have Jared Stidham and they have Brian Hoyer. Keep an eye on the possibility of Rosen ending up in New England. The Browns, I thought, had a good draft. It worked well with Jedrick Wills falling to them at 10. They didn't have to move up. 
They didn't have to move down. They got their franchise left tackle. They had earlier signed Jack Conklin in the draft. Conklin and Wills give them nice bookend pieces at the tackle position. They continued to add to their defense as well. It's funny looking at this draft. I thought the Jets did a nice job with Mekhi Becton, the ginormous left tackle from Louisville. They come back in the second round, wide receiver from Baylor, Denzel, Denzel Mims. The Jets, the Bills, and I'm going to get a lot to the Bills. Don't worry, Bills fans. Patience will be a virtue, as Brandon Bean taught us. The Jets, Bills, the second-year quarterbacks, the Browns, there's a lot of pressure now on these guys. Baker Mayfield, Josh Allen, Sam Darnold. With Baker, he had the great rookie year, and then last year was a train wreck from the beginning. I thought the poor coaching, I thought the inexperience of Baker dealing with a guy like Odell Beckham, who freelances more than runs strict routes, I think that hurt. I think the fact that they had no offensive line hurt in Cleveland. Well, those things theoretically have been shored up now. So it's time for Baker to step forward. Josh Allen in Buffalo has a really good team around him. He needs to continue to progress. He's already been to a playoff game, so he's ahead of the other guys in that respect only. And then there's Sam Darnold, who, to me, has gotten a bit of a pass through the first couple of years because of his injuries. He's also played well when healthy at times. He's also played poorly, thus a young quarterback. But these guys now have to step forward. As the teams get better around them, it's up to the quarterback to step up and become the guy that their team drafted them to be. It's two ways to build a football team. You either draft a quarterback and then build around that quarterback, or you build a team and add a quarterback to it. Two different philosophies, but I think now the Browns, to a degree the Jets, and certainly the Bills, have all built around that quarterback. I thought the Dallas Cowboys, a team that I've followed since I was a little kid, had a really good draft, and it wasn't because they did anything special. They just didn't do anything stupid. Jerry Jones, by the way, sweet boat. I mean, I don't know what a super yacht is. I talked last week about the Pagoulas having to stop construction of their super yacht. I don't know if Jerry's got a super yacht, but whatever that thing is, yeah, I could hang out there. You got to quarantine on your yacht for a month. Okay. Leave, leave me there. Where are we going? We're just going to dock at the harbor? Fine. That is a sweet, sweet boat. And, of course, Tampa. I thought Tampa had a very good draft in addition to what happened last week. Now, we did our podcast on Tuesday, and then last week we find out that Rob Gronkowski is coming out of retirement. He's going to join his buddy Tommy Boy down in Tampa. Gronk is the single greatest tight end who's ever played the position, in my opinion. He's one of the two biggest mismatches in NFL history, the other being Randy Moss. Gronk gives Tampa and Brady a legitimate weapon. Now, they needed offensive line help, and they got it in Tristan Wirfs, tackle out of Iowa, who had fallen 
They traded up one spot to get ahead of San Francisco and to get in position to take Wurfs. I thought it was a thing that, a small thing, but a good thing. And now you look at that team, skill position-wise, with Mike Evans. They've got Curtis Godwin. They add to that Rob Gronkowski. Ronald Jones had a good second half last year. Of course, Brady and the influence there. And on the defensive line, they've got some talent as well. Vita Vea, first-round draft pick from a couple of years ago, and Adamican Sue. So we're going to see a lot of the Tampa Bay Bucks this year, if there is a this year. And I think it's going to be more than just Tom Brady. Some things that I didn't understand. Well, one, I understand completely. The Raiders are going to Raider. Let's face it. I know Al Davis is long gone. Mark Davis, who had the haircut that we're all going to end up with if this quarantine thing keeps going on, the bowl cut longer than any of us. Mark Davis is probably going to always admire his dad. And frankly, I hope everyone does. I certainly admire my, my father. But Mark Davis did what his father would have done. Give me the fastest player available. And they did that with Henry Ruggs III. Ruggs, to me, has a chance to be a big impact player if he's in the right situation. Think of Tyreek Hill from the Chiefs. Tyreek Hill's a special talent, piece of crap guy, but a special talent. And when you put him on the field with the other talent that KC has, he's a huge weapon. He's a huge difference maker. If he was the only one defense has had to worry about, I don't think Tyreek Hill would be that big of a factor. I'm not sure about Henry Ruggs. And then they come back with a defensive back that most people saw as a much later pick. I loved the pick of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire to the Kansas City Chiefs. Loved that pick. I think he is going to have an impact on an already great offense going forward. So there was a lot to like, some things to dislike. One thing I did not like, and it's part of the broadcast. We live in this day and age of media, and we've talked about this in the podcast, and I used to talk about this on the show, that the media has become part of the story. It always used to be media. The job was, here's the story, judge for yourself. It's no longer that way, whether it be politics, sports, or anything else. It is a message delivered with an opinion attached to it. ESPN deciding that using the worst moment in most of these guys who were drafted's lives as part of the story was something I didn't need. It seemed every guy that was picked had a childhood tragedy or In one case, a mother who has now become clean from her drug addiction. Do we really need to hear and see all that with every pick? I get that it's part of the story. I get that it's probably a motivating factor as to why they ended up where they did. But let's be honest. That stuff is what makes people who dislike, distrust the media go even further the other side. It's unnecessary at that time. It could be part of the story down the road. 
There's no need for it. And I thought they just very much overdid it. Got to throw this in. As a Rochester guy, I'm always very proud of our young men who end up going on to better and bigger things. And a couple of young men, though not drafted in this past weekend's draft, have signed on. Two guys who played high school football and basketball and won state championships at both at Aquinas here in town. Ernest Edwards signed with the Rams as an undrafted free agent. Jameer Jones ended up signing with the Texans. Jameer, of course, went to Notre Dame like his older brother, Jerron. Jerron, over the weekend, signed with the Steelers. So Rochester being represented in the NFL. The NFL draft for the Bills, well, it was a good weekend. And I think when you look at the draft from a Bills point of view, the first thing you have to talk about is the lead-up to the draft. The Stefan Diggs trade. Let's be honest. Any Bills draft evaluation has to include that. And while looking at the Bills' move for that, I think something else has to be pointed out. A couple trades, Brandon Bean's made a bunch of trades. And this past weekend, surprisingly, he made none. Stayed where he was, ended up taking the picks that fell to him. And I think that was a very important theme. But when you look at what Brandon Bean did leading up to the draft, and maybe leading up to this year's offseason, a couple trades that he made. Wyatt Teller got traded. He was going to get cut by the Bills last year in training camp. They ended up spinning him to the Browns for a fifth and a sixth. The Browns set a seventh back to the Bills. The fifth and sixth which ended up going to Minnesota, was a huge part of that trade. Russell Bodine, another guy who was going to get cut by the Bills, the Bills got a six-round pick out of the Patriots for him. There were a lot of moves that the Bills made that allowed them to spend excess draft capital to go get Stephon Diggs. So essentially the Bills traded – for Stefan Diggs, of one of four in 2021, Wyatt Teller. And they got back two seventh-round picks because Bodine brought back a seventh, and the Vikings sent a seventh back. And Diggs, who's not going to make that deal? Wyatt Teller was going to get cut anyway. So when you look at it in context, I know the Bills overpaid in many people's eyes. I think that the price was justifiable based on the work that Bean did leading up to the draft. Here's a synopsis of what the Bills did with their draft report, or with their draft and the guys that they brought in. With the 54th pick in the 2020 NFL Draft, the Buffalo Bills select A.J. Epinesa, defensive end, Iowa. So A.J. Epinesa goes to what is already going to be a very, very good defense. And this was a kid who was one of the first five-star recruits to go to Iowa for a while and sat for a while. Buffalo Bills select Zach Moss, running back, Utah. 
Well, we just talked about Jonathan Taylor being an uber-productive running back. You could make the same for Zach Moss and the things he was able to do in his career. Uh, again, he's a cousin of Santana and Sonoris Moss. That's why you see the hometown of Hialeah Gardens. They both went to Miami. Meanwhile, Buffalo has picked wide out Gabriel Davis, Daniel Jeremiah, out of UCF. Yeah, he's a pure vertical stretch wide receiver. They line him up at times about three yards from the sideline, and they let him just get down the field. You'll see posts. You'll see takeoff, just vertical routes. Jake Fromm is off the board finally in the fifth round. The quarterback out of Georgia goes to the Buffalo Bills. Keep in mind, Jake Fromm led the FBS with 35 wins as a starting quarterback, if you believe wins are a quarterback stat. Uh, the one thing I think that's going to be a great fit about this in Buffalo is that Jake Fromm, in his intelligence, his knowledge, has blown teams away during that portion, Lewis. So as a backup, I think he'll be able to help Josh Allen in the meeting room as they prepare to get ready for that week's opponents, maybe more so than most rookie quarterbacks would be prepared to do that. Tyler Bass, the kicker, is going to the Buffalo Bills in the same division. Meanwhile, take a look at the Buffalo Bills. Isaiah Hodgins, the wide receiver, Mel, and again, another son of a former NFL player. Yeah, James Hodgins, we saw him as James Hodgins, a heck of a player, played in the NFL, the Cardinals, Jets, won a Super Bowl with the Rams. And now you have Isaiah coming in with his 6'3.5", 210-pound frame. He was the go-to guy for Jake Luton. You think about a guy who had 86 catches, 13 touchdowns this past year. Laville's taking the cornerback out of Pittsburgh. Dane Jackson started 41 of his 50 career games at Pitt, had 148 tackles. Daniel, what do you know about him? Well, Lewis agrees he's been well-educated, I can tell you that <laughs> much. But this is uh, somebody with only one interception last year. But I thought he was very quick and efficient in his in his movement, and he had a great week of practice down at the Reese's Senior Bowl. I thought he helped himself there. I'm surprised he's still on the board at this point in time. So that tells you a lot about the guys that were drafted. And Epinenza, A.J. Epinenza, the defensive end from Iowa, the fact he fell to number 54, Look, I don't know if he's going to be a 10-sack guy, but I think he's the type of guy that's on your defensive line for four or five years at least. Solid player. Not a great player. I don't anticipate him being the next Bruce Smith, but I wouldn't mind if he becomes the next Aaron Schobel. I think that that was a pick by staying put, letting the draft fall to them, the Bills got great value. Moss, the running back with he and Singletary, I think that's a good young duo going forward. Jake Fromm's interesting because there's a lot of good that can come out of this. Some people philosophize that you should draft a quarterback every year. I don't believe that. I don't think that's the way you should build a team. However, if a quarterback is there that you believe in, you take him. And it's like any other position. You need competition. You need depth. If Josh Allen can't handle the competition or being pushed from within, then he's certainly not the franchise quarterback that the Bills hope he can become. So I like the move of Jake Fromm. You look at Todd McShay's rankings and where the players were drafted. Epinenza was ranked 32 overall. He was drafted 54th. 
It's very good value. Zach Moss was ranked 57th. He was drafted 86th. Jake Fromm was 54th. He, that was his ranking. He was drafted 167th. So while I look at this draft class and I think this is a solid draft class, depth at wide receiver, potential late round hit on a cornerback in Ding Jackson, a kicker. No, you never draft kickers. I disagreed with that. You don't draft kickers ever. There are enough kickers available to go out and find some. In this day and age in this country, with the number of soccer players there are in this world, you can't find somebody who can kick consistently. It blows my mind that teams have bad kickers. You should never have a bad kickers. It's crazy to me. So the Bills have reshaped their team, and I say reshaped because it was a playoff team last year. They won 10 games. They're in a situation with a changing division with the Patriots, I think, coming back to the pack. I don't think there's any way to say it other than that. But you start to look at the additions. Stephon Diggs, Mario Addison, Vernon Butler on that D-line. A.J. Klein will likely get a start at linebacker. Josh Norman, E.J. Gaines at the cornerback position. Quentin Jefferson, Harrison Phillips coming back. They went out and signed Daryl Williams for depth on the offensive line. That's a lot of pieces being brought in to add depth and competition to a team that made the playoffs and won 10 games last year. They've lost a few pieces too, notably on that defensive line. Shaq Lawson, Jordan Phillips, Lorenzo Alexander, the leadership of Frank Gore also gone. When you look at this Bills team, This is a team now that's going to have expectations, possibly for the first time in recent history. I mean, when's the last time the Bills were favored to win the AFC East? It's been a long time, 20-plus years away. And I think this team is going to be the favorite in that division. I saw a couple power rankings that came out, and Bills were a top-10 team. And if you think of the NFL, you look at the NFL landscape right now, in my opinion, there are four really good teams. The four good teams, in my opinion, the 49ers and Chiefs who played in the Super Bowl last year, the Saints, who had a great draft again, Mickey Loomis, Sean Payton, they are uh, so far and away, in my opinion, the best at team building at this point, adding Jameis Winston potentially as a backup for Drew Brees, I thought was a very smart move. Brees misses time playing the part of Teddy Bridgewater is Jameis Winston. Let's just hope that he doesn't throw 30 interceptions again this year. And of course the Baltimore Ravens, what they have done to build that defense and running game in concert and having Lamar Jackson is the biggest X factor the league has seen in years. I think those four teams are above and beyond. And then you've got teams like the Packers and the Eagles and potentially the Titans. There are are other good teams, but I think the Bills are right in that mix. I think the Bills can play with any of those teams that aren't in that top four. So when you look at this team going forward, look at the depth. And every position, there's one position, in my opinion, that doesn't have the depth that you need going in. That's a linebacker position. Quite frankly, the Bills, in my opinion, should and likely will 
make moves before camp is done to shore up the depth at the linebacker position. If A.J. Klein, the import from the Saints, is going to be the starter replacing Lorenzo Alexander, Matt Milano, Trey Edmonds going along with him, I think this is a team that's set to win. The division, for the first time in a long time, isn't dominated by the Patriots. The Jets are going to be better. The Dolphins are going to be much better. I think those teams have a chance between six and ten games. On the high side, ten. On the low side, six. That's a far cry from where each of them were last year. And the Bills, I think they're between nine and 11. I really do. I think that this team should win at least nine games. It could win 11 games. That is if there is 11 games. So a lot to like about this weekend's draft, a lot to look at as far as what's going on with the draft and the team building going forward. We'll find out how that goes. Shift gears to the latest episode of The Last Dance. And this documentary has the nation talking. And that's about as good a thing you could say as anything. Now, it might be a little different because we don't have anything else to talk about, right? This is a great documentary. It's something that we all have enjoyed. We're hearing stories. We're seeing things. It's been fun. This past weekend, the first hour was centered around Dennis Rodman. Rodman is a character that there have been few like him in sports. He's a freak. He was a great player. He, at times, cared as much as anybody, and at times didn't care at all. This is a dude who, in the middle of the season, went to his coach and said, I need a vacation, dude. Got to go to Vegas for a couple days. Now, I get it that this time was when the internet was still in in its infancy and Twitter wasn't a thing. But could you imagine an NBA player on a prominent team in the middle of the season being like, yeah, I want to go to Vegas. I can. Johnny Manziel did it for the Browns a couple years ago. Didn't go over well. But with Rodman, it's fantastic. And when he came back, he was supposed to be gone for 48 hours. That didn't work out. Jordan went over to his house and dragged his ass out of bed. While Carmen Electra, who, by the way, still has it. Holy crap. Carmen Electra hid. Like, what are we doing here? This is just great, great stuff. And it was it was riveting to hear that part of it. Then there was the bad boys. The fact that, you know, every great team, every dynasty has to get by the previous one to become the next one. It was the way it was with the Pistons getting by the Celtics and then the Bulls getting by the Pistons. But the Pistons were a different basketball team that we've ever seen. They had guys that were just a bunch of dicks. Let's be honest. Bill Lambeer is an asshole. Still is. He was a great player, could shoot it. He was the first big man that would step out on a pick and and pop, and, and you'd have to guard him from the three line. He 
went a long way to changing the way. Think about it. He was the first stretch four we ever saw. He also was a straight-up criminal when it came to you drive the lane, I'm going to knock you out. It's assault, but it's the NBA in the 90s. We don't care. And you had Rick Mahorn, who was every bit the bad boy that he was. Rodman on the other side of the, the, the gym on that situation, getting in everybody's head. And Isaiah Thomas, who one of the more underrated great players of all time. And I think it's because he became very unlikable. And we saw why. Isaiah, who still looks like he's about 20 years old, Isaiah and Lambeer and Mahorn, when they were finally beaten by the Bulls, didn't even shake hands. They walked off. And if you watch the video, this always got me. Not only did they walk off with the game still going on, they had to walk in front of the Bills, the Bulls bench to do so. And Isaiah, if you watch the video, like ducks down as he's walking by. Like a little bitch who didn't want to be seen or didn't want to have to shake hands. And it always bothered me. And I just said he's a bitch. What did Horace Grant think about Isaiah Thomas? You know, it's fascinating to me because I'm getting an inside peek at the rival uh, of the Chicago Bulls that, you know, we we didn't we didn't see behind the curtains. Uh, the 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 problems that they had and the disrespect that they had for Jerry Krause, their president and general manager. If, if we would have treated Jack McCloskey that way in Detroit, it, it would have been a problem. Um, you know, Jordan is in the Chicago Bulls. They are they are, you know, they're rewarded for lifting weights, getting stronger, becoming mentally tougher. That's what you're supposed to do to win a championship. You were not going to beat the Detroit Pistons if you wasn't physically fit, if you wasn't in the best shape of your life, and if you wasn't mentally tough. And Chicago and Michael Jordan did and became all of those things. But while they were losing to us, they weren't those things. Now, you shouldn't be rewarded for lifting weights. I mean, we got high school kids now lifting weights. Right. I mean, being, being physically fit and, and wanting to be in shape and get better, that, that's, that's part of becoming a champion. And again, to Chicago's credit, they did. Straight up bitches. Straight up bitches. I love it. Yeah, look, when, when they, on the last dance, tried to show Jordan Isaiah justifying why he didn't shake hands. It was great. Jordan, I don't want to see it. Nothing you're going to show him. Nothing. You, and when they, see, there you go. And still holds a grudge to this day. And you think about it. The the 92 Dream Team, the Olympic Dream Team, which is the greatest. And there was only one. There wasn't a redeemed team. wasn't a dream team. No, no. Stop with all that crap. The Dream Team was the greatest basketball team ever assembled. It had Magic and Larry, Stockton, Malone, Jordan, obviously, Pippen. It had everybody. David Robinson was on that team. It was a phenomenal collection of great players and one guy didn't make the cut 
One guy didn't get the invite. Isaiah Thomas. Think about that. As great as he was, this guy against the Lakers in the finals one time scored, I think, 27 points in a quarter on one leg. He had twisted his ankle so bad, they thought he was coming out of the game. The dude was unstoppable on one leg. It was crazy watching how good Zeke was. But because of the way he played, he was every bit of a bad boy as anyone else. He would cheap shot a whole lot of players along the way and have the big boys come out and defend him. So it, it's great to, to relive these rivalries. And the bad blood, it's real, man. It is so very real. Phil Jackson is somebody who's an interesting figure in this documentary. He is the coach who not only is the coach, he's the brother figure. And and I won't say the father figure because he's not. The way he connected with Rodman through Native American teachings that he grew up learning based on where he grew up. And Rodman had grew up, grown up around some Native American areas. So he understood some of that as well. And they connected that way. Phil Jackson, who back when he played for the Knicks and won a championship for the Knicks, yeah, the Knicks actually won a championship at one time, was basically a hippie. Dude was like doing acid and hanging out and just living the life. And, you know, then he becomes the coach and Jerry Krause hired him. Jerry Krause couldn't wait to get rid of him, broke up this dynasty because he didn't like the fact that Phil got the credit that Krause should have gotten. And I don't know, as, as great as all the video footage that we've seen is, you know, if, if you've wa- been watching, Michael Jordan, the way he played basketball, was something that we've never seen before. We've never seen a guy have that flair. And it's just watching him, he's the coolest basketball player I've ever seen. He's the most graceful, stylish, come up with the word. But everything he did looked great. And when you're a little kid and you start playing sports, you, you follow the player that you like the way they look. And you watch MJ and you watch the way he played. Every kid played like that or tried to. Nobody could play like that, but you tried to. And it's just coming back, watching the grace that he hung in the air, the feet flying apart, you know, the the tongue wagging, the trash talk, the look. It's just it's just great to see. And and it's a great reminder of not only of how great of a basketball player he was, but the way he played the game. I can't wait. There's six more hours of this stuff, and it's been great. The soundtrack, (laughs) sign me up for this. As an old guy, sign me up for the soundtrack of The Last Dance. It has been fantastic so far. Can't wait to see where it goes from here. I I just, I guess, selfishly hope that Carmen Electra keeps, get get her recurring role on this thing, because uh, at her age, looking the way she looks as an old guy, props to you, Carmen Electra. Well, the draft is over, and we 
now are focusing on the last dance because that's the only sport that we're going to see going forward. So the question now is what's next and major league baseball and golf and the summer sports should be coming up, but are they, I continue to read about baseball will be played this year. And this is something MLB's dead set up. There's going to be a lot of discussions about what to do, how to do it. Still looking at a condensed schedule. They're hoping for maybe an 80 to 100 game season that will begin in July and probably be played in Arizona or somewhere central, centrally located with many parks, no fans. Players will have to accept a reduced salary because there won't be revenue coming in from ticket sales and all the things that go along with that. Not sure that they're going to go along with that. Is something better than nothing? I certainly would think it is. But, you know, you're thinking about as a player, you've got X amount of years to make money. Are you willing to play a reduced season for reduced salary? Then there's the NFL. Next week, the NFL schedule should come out. That's when it's always slated to come out. And while we think about the teams that are going to be prominently displayed, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers probably will be on the primetime games five five times thereabouts. They go from once or twice to five because of Tom Brady, Gronk, and all the interest there. I think the Bills are a team that are going to be on two or three times on a night game. I, I really expect that. Of course, the Ravens, Saints, Chiefs, 49ers, the really good teams will be on five or six as will the Cowboys. The thing with the, with the schedule release, right now if it comes out, it's meaningless. It may say that the opening day is the Sunday after the Labor Day weekend in September. That means nothing because the probability of that happening right now, I don't think is very high. The NFL has a lot of contingency plans in place, including a reduced schedule, 12 to 14 games instead of 16. The possibility of opening day being mid-October, the Super Bowl being at the end of February instead of at the beginning of February, basically pushing everything a month back. I think when the schedule comes out, you won't see a whole lot of division games early in the schedule. You'll either see very few division games early in the schedule, or you see all division games early in the schedule. For the thought of this, if the NFL has to reduce games, they'd much rather reduce common opponent games than others. So they will likely move on from games that are going to level the playing field somewhat. Either way, we're in an unprecedented time. And with the draft in the rearview mirror, the sports landscape that we're driving towards is pretty barren. I'm sure there will be sports of some sort going forward. Golf is the logical choice to have its schedule resume. Although, what are the purses going to look like if there's no fans? Are there still going to be sponsorships? I know the TV money will still be there. But do they have to reduce the purses? And if they do that, 
do all the players decide, well, yeah, I'm not going to play. There are a lot of guys who make a lot of money playing golf. And to the point they tailor their schedule anyway. It's going to be fun to see how this works out. And frankly, for me, I don't know what's next. I just hope that we get something to look forward to. Because as we seem to be, and I say seem, seem to be moving on the other side of this thing, how we then step back into what is going to be our new normal. It's not ever going to be like it was before. But when we step back to that new normal, how do we do so in a way that isn't something we're going to have to change? And that's what these sports leagues have to figure out. Everyone wants to set a plan up. We're going to do this. But if you have to change that plan, you risk hurting your sport more than you would have if you had just been a little bit more patient. So a lot of work to be done by the sports leagues. I'm intrigued to see how it turns out. Just glad we had some sports this weekend to talk about. The draft is always good. And I, for one, can't wait to get the next big thing going. We got the last dance for now. That's all I'm looking forward to. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk next week. Thanks for listening. Falcon Around Podcast. Appreciate it. Have a good one.